I'm Greg Muller. This is Gertie's Law. Last episode, we looked at the relationship between the Supreme Court and the media and examined the institutional tension which exists between the two. Despite judges and journalists both working here every day, they never get a chance to talk. In part two of this episode, they do. We assembled a panel of four Supreme Court judges and four working court reporters. We all met one evening after court had finished for the day and sat around the bar table in Court 15. The very same court where Cardinal George Pell's appeal judgment was heard and viewed around the world the day before. From salacious headlines to suppression orders, journalists on one side of the table, judges on the other. My name is Adam Cooper. I'm a court reporter with The Age. I'm Karen Sweeney. I'm a court reporter with Australian Associated Press, AAP. My name's Shannon Deary, reporter with The Herald Sun. My name is Karen Percy. I'm a reporter with the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. I'm Elizabeth Hollingworth. I'm head of the criminal division in the trial division. Peter Reardon, head of the commercial court. Anne Ferguson, Chief Justice. Uh, Simon Whelan, Court of Appeal. So who's going to kick us off? Well, I'm happy to start. Um, maybe this question can be to you, Your Honour. Um, in, in my sort of few years covering courts and speaking to colleagues as well, it's felt like there's a bit of, somewhat of an erosion of trust between the courts and the media. Do you think that's the case? And if so, do you have a reason why? I think one thing we have noticed is that when we started, there were a lot more dedicated court reporters and many um, publications, and I'm not referring to people who are here at the table, now, due to resourcing issues, send down people who may not have particular expertise in court. And certainly speaking for myself, one has an awareness these days that you're dealing with a mixture of people who understand the rules of subjudice and some people... Subjudice basically means before a judge or court. It's a Latin phrase which translates as under judicial consideration. For reporters, it means they can report in a fair way what is said in court, but can't report or comment on it in a way which might undermine a fair hearing or prejudice the outcome. Doing so can lead to contempt of court proceedings for the journalist, and more importantly, it can lead to an unfair trial. The rule is aimed at avoiding a trial by media. And that can lead for a little bit of caution. That said, I, I'd like to think, and maybe I'm kidding myself, that we're becoming a little bit more open, certainly in terms of um, allowing things to be reported, um, trying to provide materials uh, to the media and so on. So. I think there's, there are a mixture of movements going on, but certainly speaking for my part, I think it's um, somewhat regretful that the expertise that used to exist, certainly when I started, I think when Justice Whelan started, isn't necessarily there with all the court reporters. And there have been some big changes too. Um, over the last 15 years, the pressure on reporters has increased significantly because there's no deadline anymore. The deadline is permanent. It's five minutes time, whereas when we started, uh, it was not like that. You didn't have to get a story up straight away. So the time pressure has become more intense, I think. 
And um, the other thing that's happened is the competition within the media has, I believe, become more intense. So the temptation to try to make a story attractive, to get a reaction, has uh, increased. And um, that's meant um, that the natural tension that exists between what we do and what you do has also come into sharper focus because uh, we're dealing with, particularly in crime, these very highly charged situations, highly emotional situations. And I suppose in some ways we are not ignoring the emotion, but trying to deal with the things that need to be dealt with in a way which is um, in accordance with the law and to that extent not emotional. Those reporting the matter have a different agenda. They're concerned to accentuate the emotion, uh, or at least in part they're concerned to do that because that'll be more likely to get a, to make an interesting story and to get a story that people will want to read. So the increased time pressure and the increased pressure to get a reaction I think might have led to uh, uh, more tension than it had existed in the past. And Having said that, I think we've done a marvellous job. Uh, <laughs> in, uh, I would say we've done a marvellous job. <laughs> Actually, the other thing is just think, picking up on what you're saying, Simon, it makes me reflect on how the role of um, victims and members of the public has changed over the last yes, 15 yes. years. Because when I first started sitting in crime, you often wouldn't get victims' families sitting in court throughout a trial. They certainly didn't want to speak to the media. And I think social media has made the whole community more aware of putting themselves out there. And it's now not uncommon for many members of the victim's family or friends to come and sit throughout a trial. Can I pick you up on that a little bit, though? Mm. You know, in terms of it being more perhaps salacious or or more Mm. emotional (laughs) or whatever. I mean, I actually think when you go back through the archives, I'm actually shocked at some of the stuff that was written 20, 30, 40 years ago that was as Mm. salacious, as detailed, perhaps more so. There might be some details we don't actually do anymore. So um, I, I do take take your point the pressures are definitely there and to be noticed and to get clicks there's all of those pressures you're absolutely Mm. right but I do think that there's always been a great interest in these kinds of stories Mm. um and I guess it's just we're all perhaps still having teething problems in the new digital age we are the media we're we're under so much pressure in the media to uh to justify you know what we're doing and and how we're doing it to our editors and the like but I think that you know those kind that the emotion has always been in there and the dirty details have always been in there I think the internet plays a big part though because stories don't go away anymore Mm. you know so I can only imagine if you're a lawyer and you see a story in a newspaper 30 years ago that you, you know, affects your case, you could think, well, you know, it's there for a day, a jury may not see it, it'll be gone tomorrow, or, you know, use as fish wrap. But now that story's there forever, you know, and it doesn't go away. So I think that's a big issue as well. Is there any reconcilability um, with our respective positions? Because if we take sentencing, for example, I think that... The media has been very successful in satisfying most of the community that judges are soft on crime and any survey would tell you that they under-sentence all of the time as a matter of generality. And I think that's because, not surprisingly, uh, the media will zero in on any case which they think can be sold as the courts being soft on crime. 
to disagree with you there. We cover cases because they're interesting, because we think people want to know about them, need to know about them. And often it's commentators or people on social media or the community who will say that sentence was, sentence was too light, it was too harsh. And we will report on it if it's appealed by one of the parties or the other. So I'm not sure that we focus on... I mean, we never know what a sentence is going to be, so we can't necessarily focus on something that we think will be too light or... I think it's interesting, though, because you draw... Each of you draws a distinction between what you do as journalists um, and what others in the media might do, like the editor writing an editorial, somebody making a decision not to publish a letter, social media. To us, you're all the media. And so I can understand that you quite rightly think, that's not me, I don't do that. But I suppose to a certain extent, from our point of view, it's what the media is some enormous mass do. I think the other thing, because I, I do agree to accept with what Justice Reardon's saying, um, we have had repeated surveys done, and I know one of them was mentioned in an earlier Gertie's Law, there have been repeated surveys in Australia and overseas about when you give jurors or members of the public the same information as the judge had. In every one of these surveys, without doubt, um, actual members of the public would give lighter, not heavier sentences. And a number of my colleagues have over the years tried to get these sorts of results published in the paper. And when I think of the pushback, and I won't name individual publications, but the pushback they've had in trying to even get reported the fact that there is all this research to the contrary. Um, as I say, I'm sure nobody at the table's involved in that, but you represent this, um, this sort of amorphous mass, uh, I'm afraid, to us, as we probably represent an amorphous mass to you. And that's right. <laughs> I think there is a sense that it's not all media, not all the time, not all judges, not all the time, but that doesn't help this discussion necessarily. <laughs> There's a point that you just made about when juries have the same information that judges have, and that is something that the media don't have. We will go to a plea hearing and we'll hear about bits that are pulled out, the highlights of a report, but we never see the entire report. Obviously there's privacy issues there, but it does mean that to an extent we are flying blind. And it happens in criminal matters, it happens in commercial matters, it happens in civil matters. Is there any way that um, things could be worked so that media have greater access to information? I think there are some restrictions on us giving access, particularly in criminal cases, um, for a variety of reasons. Um, and where we can, we try to give you what we can early so that you've got a bit of time, because we do recognise that you're just doing your job and you've got this always moving deadline, I suppose, is what I'd call it. Um, so we, what information we can do, we do try to get out there um, as quickly as we can to all of the media. There's also, though, I think not an appreciation of what's going on outside court for the judges and for their staff. And so, you know, you get out of court and to deal with some of the requests that are coming in for information when you've got work that you've got to do, sometimes you've got to pick the balance to get it right. Uh, so I think that's a, a problem. But we're certainly very keen to do what um, we can do to help you to do your job. And the reason we're keen to do that is because we want accurate reporting. And if we don't do what we can to get that information to you, we're more at risk of there being inaccurate reporting, which leads to a whole lot of other work that has to be done. And it's got the risks associated with it in the worst case scenario of, you know, a trial goes um, belly up. Just on the issue of um, commercial courts, we know that there's 
there's plenty of de- great, interesting stories in commercial courts, and, that, and for, unfortunately, we're often restricted in terms of the resources we we, we can send. Um, we, I know, general reporters tend to focus more on crime stories. We do have finance reporters who go to commercial court cases, but is there some way? that we can, in the media, go in and access information about commercial cases where we have a general idea about what the story is or what the case is, as opposed to um, having needing to be there right at the start to, to pick it up? I think, I think it's a really good point. Um, plainly, you have got rights to go in to access the court documents, particularly the pleadings and those sorts of matters. Um, you currently are also able to get copies of affidavits um, and that sort of thing as well. Uh, and I think that we should encourage you, you to be able to get maybe summaries of some of these these matters that would be of assistance to you in determining what might be of interest to your readers. I'd be interested to know what more I could do about that. I would have thought in crime we're quite a bit better now than we used to be on that score. There's a lot more summaries. I hope that access to transcript and that yes, sort of thing is... We'll give ourselves a pat on the back for that. I mean, when Liz and I started, it was terribly difficult even to get judges to do the sentencing remarks in mm. writing. Mm. Very difficult. There was a lot of resistance to that. And so you had to scribble it down as they were talking. Um, I hope those days are all gone. That but seems powerful for you guys. Now, you, you've always got sensing remarks. I hope that's right. Oh, it seems to be. <laughs> Most yeah. people do. We certainly yeah. try to, um, yeah. if we can. And we're also looking more over the last year or two, we're expanding more into televising significant ones and certainly audio recordings fairly standard now so that that's available um, f- for all but the most exceptional um, sentence as well. Do you think the media plays an Im- as an important role as it once did in promoting the work of the court, given the courts now have their own Twitter feeds and their own websites and you can push, you can run your own live streams like f- for big cases, you can push your own information out there. Do you think... We, we play that role, and if we don't, is that maybe where the breakdown in trust is coming from because we don't really need each other as much as we once did? For my part, I've never seen it as part of the media's role to um, promote the court, for want of a better word. I just don't see that that's part of your remit. Um, if, to the extent that you um, talk about what's going on in court, I'm very pleased about that as, you know, if it's accurate, because that does show the work of the court to a broader range of people than would otherwise know about it. Um, but I, certainly for my part, have never seen it as part of your role to um, promote the court or do anything like that. It certainly doesn't hurt to have the description of the work we do and how we go about it, and that's important, that's I think. Maybe phrase, promote the work of the court, but to surely um, making the community aware of sentencing is important because otherwise things, I suppose, like general deterrence don't really work if no one knows, you know, how, how the courts are operating. Do you know what I mean? I, yeah. I didn't, probably I, didn't mean promote You them. know, I, I do. You, you're really getting to the, um, the need for the institution to be accepted by the community as a valuable part of a democratic society, which it is. Mm. Um, and to the extent that your job is consistent with that message being part of it, I'd you know, say, great, go for it. I think, I think there's some... Sorry, go on, Adam. No, I was just going to say, a long time ago, we wouldn't have reported domestic abuse as we do now, and now it's not uncommon for reporters to go in 
and cover the case of a murder, like a, a husband accused of murdering his wife. So I, I think it's, um, it's probably appealing to readers and it's probably appealing to editors to, to get a you know, really juicy story on that one day. But I, I, I think also that court reporting's got a vital part to play for the community in, in terms of holding people to account, seeing that justice is being done and also, um, I guess, reporting what's happening in the community, that how prevalent these sort of issues are. And Adam, you asked me a question before about the commercial court and speaking for the commercial court, I think it's important that the press reports that we're not just a criminal court um, and most people only think of crime when they think of the courts. That's why we had the iceberg episode. <laughs> Can I ask um, each of you, when you see reporters in your courtroom, does your heart sink or are you pleased about it? I'd, am I allowed to say it depends on who the court reporters are? <laughs> and the judge is too. <laughs> And can I say, um, I wouldn't recognise you. I will now, but I wouldn't recognise you, so I wouldn't know unless there was someone that was taking notes in an old-fashioned way, I suppose. I don't know whether I shouldn't say it's old-fashioned, should I? You might do that still. <laughs> but I, you're, not, you're actually not focused on who's in the courtroom. You're actually focused on the people at the, at the bar table because you're listening them and you're watching them or if you've got a witness in the box... Your whole attention's focused on them. You're just concentrating on what you're doing. You're not thinking about who's there or who's not there. Or I certainly don't. Do you actively seek out and read stories about things that you have, decisions you've made or sentences you've handed down? I have a practice of reading the paper and I don't alter that practice. And if there's been a case that I'm in, then I will read those articles, but I don't go and search more broadly outside whatever I would usually do. If I've got a, jury, a criminal jury trial, I make sure through the news clipping services that I'm checking what's out there so that if any juror has been exposed to something, some inaccurate reporting, I'm sort of on top of it. So I do it not as a vanity exercise in did they spell my name right and, you know, <laughs> what did they say about what I said yesterday? But, you know, joking aside, it's to actually see what's been reported about yesterday's court proceedings in case it might have affected the juror because of all the something I've got to do to say to the jury in case they inadvertently came across some of the media. I think that uh, I probably get it brought to my attention from family or friends so that recently <laughs> when I, it was reported that I'd said something or done something and there was a photograph of an Irish judge. <laughs> <laughs> and so that came through on my WhatsApp. What about you, yeah. Simon? Well, um, look, media attention's a bit of a no-win thing for us. <laughs> it, it might be neutral... It's unlikely to be a happy experience. <laughs> it might not be a happy experience. So uh, I suppose um, we're naturally cautious, especially in the days when I was running criminal trials, Liz doing now, uh, your main concern is something will go wrong in the trial. That's what you're mainly worried about. Uh, and um, you're pretty cautious as a result. In the Court of Appeal, yes, I suppose the truth is uh, if you want the quiet life, it's better if you can make your decisions without a lot of fuss. On the other hand, um, judges who always decide in such a way as not to cause a fuss are probably not doing their job. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so a bit of fuss is part of the 
part of the job, really. Speaking of the fuss and the fuss <laughs> that was happening in this particular courtroom not so long ago, it just struck me as part of this whole process, the appeal process and, and reviewing a jury verdict more generally, not this one specifically, but how do you find as appellate judges putting yourself in the shoes of jurors, you've got decades of judicial experience, lawyers, the kinds of um, decisions and, and experience you have. How do you put yourselves in the shoes of 12 ordinary young uh, men and women who don't have that kind of experience? Do we do that? <laughs> we don't do that. <laughs> I was going to leave it to you. Well, that's that. an, I guess that's an assumption as part of the yeah. uh, reviewing of a jury verdict, that you, you're putting mm. yourself and you're listening, trying to listen to what they've had they've listened to, you're reading what they've read. Um, can you really review a jury verdict given that you've got this extensive knowledge of the system and the law and they would not have and did not have during that process? Well, when we're looking at errors, you know, the judge admitted this evidence he shouldn't have or um, something went wrong in the charge or some such thing. Well, the jury don't that doesn't enter into it. We're just dealing with what the judge did but then. But I'm talking specifically about But on about the unreasonable the yeah. ground, or what yeah. used to be called unsafe and unsatisfactory, on the unreasonable ground, well, we're only asking ourselves, uh, was the jury bound to have a doubt? Having We look at the evidence ourselves, was the jury bound to have a doubt? Uh, and um, so we're not second-guessing the jury. And frankly, when we're not better qualified than them on these sorts of issues, uh, factual issues about the sort of things that are rise in criminal trials. Ordinary people are just as capable of assessing that as we are. And there's 12 of them, which gives them a big advantage over one or two or three of us. Uh, so we're not putting ourselves in their place. We're not supplanting them. It's just a the ability to go to the Court of Appeal and say the verdict was unreasonable is just a safeguard against a situation where a jury reaches a decision which, uh, in all the circumstances, it was not really open for them to reach. So, and we have confidence in the juries and um, I don't think many judges would say that confidence has been shown to be misplaced over the years. But it's a human system and um, it will have flaws because it is. Do you know what juries are thinking and what they focus on in making a decision? Because obviously we've got a system here where it's an offence to even ask a juror what they base their decision on, compared to say the US, where once the trial's over, it's a free for all. The US system always unnerves me because you've got this sort of unseemly race, even sometimes before the jury have returned their verdict, everyone's busy trying to line them up for talk shows and book deals and all this sort of thing. Uh, and I think it kind of, to my mind, when I see what happens in America, it rather undermines my confidence in the system because this sort of jockeying of all these jurors and ex-jurors for their moment, their 15 minutes of fame, their moment of in the spotlight tends to lead to them saying things which may or may not reflect what actually happened in the courtroom. So I certainly wouldn't look to America as an example of what we'd want to do. Um, I don't, I'm not sure what we would gain as judges necessarily asking them what their reasoning was. I think what has relaxed in recent years is that researchers now increasingly get permission to speak to the jury. So what used to be a strict prohibition on us finding out has relaxed. And I think there's been a lot of really good research done by 
um, good researchers into the way juries think. I'm more satisfied personally with it being done as an academic exercise rather than asking individual jurors, now, why did you do that and what did you think of that piece of evidence? I mean, of course, at a human level, you want to know, did you think that witness was as, you know, as strange as we did or did you believe that person? But that's just perhaps prurient curiosity. But at a professional level, personally, I'm happy to perhaps leave it to the academics to explore when we're looking for thematic issues and um, otherwise just keep my curiosity to myself and my associates. This is a special edition of Gertie's Law where we've assembled a panel of four Supreme Court judges and four court reporters. The judges are Chief Justice Anne Ferguson, Appeal Court Judge Justice Whelan, Principal of the Criminal Division Justice Hollingworth and Principal Judge of the Commercial Court Justice Reardon. The reporters are Adam Cooper from The Age, Karen Sweeney from Australian Associated Press or AAP, Shannon Deary from the Herald Sun and the ABC's Karen Percy. The Supreme Court and the County Court often or regularly loses juries and has to start again for whatever reason. Can you envisage one day that um, there might be judge alone criminal trials? Um, I don't know if the Chief Justice wants to speak to that first, or would you like me to? You, you speak, and if we've got a different view, we've got a different view. Um, look, there are two different things. I don't necessarily see that judge alone trials would come about because we keep losing juries. The reasons we keep losing juries um, can be many and varied. They can vary from something happening within the courtroom that has meant that the fair trial process can't continue. Somebody says something that shouldn't have been said, um, a witness has interfered with, um, something of that sort, or it can happen because of something's happening with the um, the jury themselves. Someone does some impermissible research online and you become aware of it. Somebody realises they knew one of the witnesses, etc. So the current reasons we discharge juries wouldn't lead me to think we should have judge-alone trials. Um, they make us a bit more cautious about who we put on the juries and they make us cautious, as Simon has said, about trying to fiercely protect what's happening in the trial to stop it going off the rails. If we were ever to move to to judge-alone trials, and I'm not expressing a preference or a view one way or the other, I suspect the driver for that would be that in the modern world, um, the amount of information that might be out about a particular accused or a particular crime might be perceived to have reached a stage where it would be very hard to find 12 ordinary people who could actually, even with all our directions, give that person a fair trial. I suspect that that would be the sort of, you know, the high notoriety case that might lead governments to look at it. As I say, I'm not advocating for or against it, but I would think it would be that sort of momentum rather than the fact that we sometimes lose juries or we have to start a trial again. But what about leaves a situation where you're, say, two weeks into a trial and the, tri- and the jury has to be discharged, both parties say, look, we've only got a few, few days to go, why don't you do it? It seems hard to imagine why the judge shouldn't in those circumstances. It's just such an enormous waste. Um, Yes and no. It's, a, it's a, perhaps a waste of court time, but for the amount of time that a judge would take to write reasons for a decision beyond reasonable doubt would more than consume the time it would take to impanel another jury. And that's because we don't require a jury to give reasons. We require them to come to a verdict. They're often out deliberating for two or three or four days, but they come back with a verdict and that's the end of the matter. If I had heard the first three weeks of a four-week murder trial discharge the jury and then continue on for the last week, it would take me a month or two afterwards with nothing else on. I'd have to clear my diary. Um, It would take me a month or two to then write the reasons for decision. So the verdict wouldn't be as quick and I wouldn't be hearing other trials in that month to month and a half. So the perceived efficiency, I think, is a bit um, illusory. 
I think if it happens, it won't be for efficiency reasons. If it were to happen, I think it would be because of the need to um, deal with a very high-profile um, accused. Although I'm not, I'm not sure that judges are necessarily as immune from unconscious bias as ordinary members of the public. I'm not sure that's been proved to be the case. <laughs> uh, prior convictions, for example, have an effect on your view of the trial, and um, I'm not sure that judges are immune from that so that it would represent a solution to that problem. But anyway, mm. And there's all sorts of applications that are made along the way to exclude evidence. So if the judge who's hearing the trial has heard the application to exclude, um, that can create problems. You get that in civil cases as well, where the judge will hear a case about whether or not a document can be admitted or whether it's privileged. Some judges prefer not to hear the application if they're going to be the trial judge. Others do both. Mm. But I think that there's those issues. And you do lose um, one of the benefits of the jury, which I think was you, Simon, mentioned before, is you're getting people with a broader range and diversity of life experience. Um, it might be that you end up with 12... Now, should I choose a particular group? You, choose, you know, some 12 people that say we're lawyers in a different circumstance, so you get 12 people of the same discipline, so it's not. But that's probably not very likely, mm. although we don't, you know. No. I, I think the public... I've quite have confidence in juries more more than in judges actually. Mm. Jury verdicts are sometimes the subject of controversy, but pretty rarely. I think by and large the public have um, faith in the fact that it's twelve members of the public who have made the decision. So oh, you're right, Simon. Mm. They, they would very re readily think that the ivory tower people have taken over <laughs> if we were the <laughs> What do you think about that? Yeah. Don't you agree? Would you prefer to see judge alone trials, or how do you view I think it jury? Depends on the circumstance. I think that um, I think your point is right that when there are some very high-profile cases where you either have to put off proceedings to such a, a, a you know time down the track that people might have forgotten about it, but it's highly unlikely in those cases. So, but I do think there is a robustness in the jury system because. You know, things have to be simplified so that ordinary people can understand it. And I think if it's judge only, you've got an understanding and a level certainly of the law and certain matters that, um, you know, are, are different. So I think they'd be very different beasts. So I could see them perhaps having application in some circumstances, but not across the board. And the human drama of watching a jury is... <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's face it, we, we just love the, yeah, the, yeah. the drama of, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah watching everyday people come in and decide someone else's fate. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's I think incredible. it's good for them too in that, you know, you, you see over the course of a trial that the day they're impanelled, you can look at all these these 12 or 13, 14 very reluctant-looking people, <laughs> arms crossed in the body language, and then over the, you know, and still praying that there's some way they'll be miraculously sort of zapped off the jury. <laughs> and then over the next day or two, they start to settle in. And then by the end of the first week, they're really getting into it and they're starting to ask questions. And they're getting some ownership of it. And I know from what they say to our staff insofar as they're able to discuss things, they actually, most of them end up feeling a degree of pride and a sense that they've actually been part of something. And I think in terms of our relationship with the community and the justice system's relationship with the community, it's actually really important that members of the community are involved in, you know, in that sort of way. 
There was an appeal recently, and I, I can't remember what the case was, but one of the issues that the defence had taken was that there were jurors asking questions, and they weren't going through the judge to ask the questions. It kind of reached a point where they were just going directly to the witness. Would you like to see more of juries doing that? Should they be an active participant in that way? Uh, that's one of the suggested ways of addressing the problem of juror research, that... Um, Part of the reason why jurors maybe do research, which is which they're told not to do, is because they don't feel they can ask in the courtroom. So I think um, the psychologists would tell us we should be encouraging them to feel they can ask in the courtroom because it will be a, it will make it more likely they'll comply with the direction not to look themselves. Uh, I don't know, Liz. What do you? I I, I don't encourage when I them did to criminal trials. Yeah. The law was you've got to do it through the judge. Mm. Whereas I don't think that's necessarily the case anymore. I, I still do that, but they could do it with a note passed up. I don't encourage them to call out for a variety of reasons. They may ask impermissible questions or unfair questions or questions that someone's going to come to, and I don't want them to become another presence in, in the questioning process because that actually isn't their role. They're a decision maker. I think it is important that we make sure if they've got concerns or questions that they're addressed, but I always encourage them, and they regularly do hand to me um, questions. Um, sometimes quite furiously, I remember a trial I had a couple of years ago, which was a very complicated DNA case, and it involved not only looking at the DNA science, but also the algorithms that underlay the mathematics behind the computer program. We had a couple of computer programmers on the jury. <laughs> they kept handing these notes up. They were just sort of tearing off strips of paper, and I'd read them out, and they were brilliant. You know, ask about whether the coefficient is such and such. <laughs> and the barristers and I just look at each other, and I just turn to the witness and say, you know, what do you say? So I have never found that they felt hesitant using that format, but I do think them putting on a piece of paper and giving to me just allows me to screen in case there's something impermissible. And I think as long as you encourage an environment where they know they can do it, but just not by yelling out across the court, mm. I think we can accommodate everybody's needs in that regard. Mm. Slightly off topic, but given we're talking about juries and power and numbers and working together, can I ask each of you, do you um, ever feel the need or can you confer with each other um, about different things you might be struggling with to, either to work out or think, you know, have I got this right? Not necessarily sentencing, but decisions that you're making in court. Do you ever speak to each other about things that, that go on? Yeah, all the time. Really? <laughs> Absolutely. I think that's something people would know. I think it's mm. quite interesting. Oh, no, know? we do. We walk yeah. around the corridors saying, what do you think about this? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, all the time. Of course, in the Court of Appeal, we have, you know, we there's have, three of us, yeah. so we always... Yep. All the three of us will talk about it and we exchange drafts and so on. Um, but even in, I, I would often, if I'm, it's more just to articulate in your own mind, you know, to talk to someone who doesn't necessarily know as much about it as you, but as comes from a similar perspective, it just clarifies the issues for yourself. But yeah, we talk about, judges talk to each other all the time. Mm. Can I ask you then, Sharon, <laughs> do you write a story and then the editor says, oh, come on, beef this up a bit, put the complaints by the victim's family up the front rather than down the back? <laughs> uh, that really is a misconception that, you know, we're instructed to write in a certain way. It's really not the case. And you're looking yeah. like you don't believe me, but it's really, <laughs> it, it really is not the case. I know, it's those subbies, though. The, I don't know if are there subbies anymore. There probably aren't. <laughs> But uh, often it's the headline that makes us yeah. more cross than Which the, we have than the article. Yeah. I know. That is the subject. <laughs> exactly. Um, and, of course, their job is to grab people's attention. So, um, 
they'll do what they need to do to, to do that, I suppose. But seriously, I mean, the four of us all have officers in this court, mm. which is very generous of the court, and we don't, well, I personally never ever go to my head office down at South Bank. So the only way I communicate with my boss is over the phone or, or um, uh, email. And of course, he's never in court to see what I'm seeing. So he trusts that what I'm telling him mm. is, you know, the story of the day, you know, and the line that I tell him is is the line. So they trust that we're, we're doing the right thing. So we actually have to take responsibility for the stories that run because generally they're, they're, they're run exa- exactly as they're filed. How do you do it? I mean, you've got the magistrate's court with hundreds of cases, you've got the county court with scores, and then you've got big cases here. How do you keep abreast of it? How can you do a story about three or four, which I know sometimes you do, yeah. three or four hearings in a day? What, what do you actually do physically? Do you run backwards and forwards? Or? Well, we've still got three or four court reporters at the Herald Sun dedicated to this round. So okay. we're sort of lucky we can place people around. I think other mm-hmm. organisations are the same. So that's, that's really the way to do it, you mm-hmm. know. If there's a serious case happening, then there's an obligation, I think, for us to be in court as much as we can in the same case, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and sit there as, as much as possible. And, so you would often sit in a case for a whole day yourself or not not necessarily the whole day but do nothing but one case for a day there's a case this year that i sat in for well over 10 weeks and wasn't able to write anything you know Mm. and sat there all day every day so you know we we do dedicate you know there's a lot of um talk about the media being you know um under resourced which is absolutely true but I, i don't think that necessarily equates to the criticism that we don't spend enough time in court i think you know for what we regard as very important stories, we definitely dedicate the time that, you know, is needed. Can I pick up what you were saying about the headline? I think we have to give consumers, readers, listeners, viewers some um, credit that they can look through the headline too mm. and, they, and they know when they've kind of been sold something that isn't quite what it is. So I think... <laughs> oh, I'm a headline reader and if I'm not taken by the headline, I'm not going any further. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you'd, li- you'd like to think, you'd like to think, and that's sometimes when you read the whole of the article, yeah, you think that's fair and accurate. That, but well, that's the, what I'm, but we all I'm know saying. that the first, yeah. the first bit of it, and you know that, that's your job. First if, bit of it's got to be the entire. But if it's utterly inaccurate, by the time somebody gets to the end of the story, they're saying, that's not the story that but I... they don't. That's oh, the thing. I, I think maybe people do. Mm. <laughs> not, my, not my personal experience. <laughs> we might have to agree to disagree. Should we get to the We're obliged to the write room? stories in an interesting way. I mean, that's how we, oh. we attract people. And, um, yeah, if... if um, if our stories aren't grabbing someone and people switch off and go elsewhere, then we're, we're, you know, that's part of our job too. So it's that juggling act between obviously making it right and accurate and making it appealing to someone. So, And there can be, I mean, yeah, there can be times where an editor might say, I like this, and we have to push back and say, well, this is better. But, I mean, it always sort of appeals to me, the circumstances, not necessarily the emotion. I mean, the remarkable stories are here and, this building are, are good enough. So that's what sort of grabs me. I'm one of those more unusual journalists who does actually write the headline. And I can tell you it's the part of my job that I hate the most mm. because there's always someone that's going to take issue with what you write, but you've got a limited amount of space and you can't fit it all in. Well, there's the elephant in the room, which it's is... Suppression orders and you've got the folder oh, there. I've got the folder. <laughs> <laughs> I came prepared. I love it. Very good. All right, I'll say my bit. 
Oh, can I ask a question, though, before you say that? <laughs> no, I was just going to ask, do you think the Open Courts Act has actually helped reduce the amount of suppression a orders? Bit. Right. Uh, I mean, I've gone on the record about this before. It hasn't had the effect that it was hoped. Uh, the numbers didn't drop as much as was hoped, but they did drop. Um, they dropped in the Supreme Court and in the County Court, um, but there's probably still too many. Um, I don't think um, that's only my opinion. Um, but I do think the Vincent report, it's fundamental. The, the, the big concern is, is there a real problem in the sense that we don't have justice as open as it should be in Victoria. Just a quick note here, former Court of Appeal Judge Frank Vincent recently oversaw an independent review of the Open Courts Act 2013, which looked closely at suppression orders. And uh, the Vincent report, although it revealed uh, an unacceptable extent of non-compliance with the Open Courts Act, especially in the lower courts, the, its fundamental conclusion was that criminal proceedings in Victoria are overwhelmingly open. That's what he said. And the media all jumped on the Vincent report, especially the passages about non-compliance, and ignored that, which is when he addressed the real issue. Do we have a problem in the sense that we don't have open justice? He said, no, it's overwhelmingly open. And nobody reported that because it doesn't fit your narrative, which is the secret state thing. <laughs> and that was very disappointing <laughs> because that's surely the most important thing. Uh, I know you find the suppression orders annoying and um, you think we could create a world where they don't exist, but I think that's unlikely. The other aspect of it that upset, not upsets us, but, you know, is a bit of a great, is the idea that Victoria is worse than everywhere else. When the truth is that we're better than everywhere else because we're the only people who comprehensively compile them. Again, as Justice Vincent pointed out, nobody except South Australia maintains records comprehensively like we have. And South Australia makes more orders per head than we do. But even in, if you take the New South Wales Supreme Court, uh, they make at least as many orders as we do, but you can't even be sure how many they make because they don't keep a comprehensive record of them. So that's, that's my little speech. <laughs> <laughs> now you can say what you think. <laughs> One of the problems I have with suppression laws, and I understand the need for them, you know, that they're, for, for whatever reason they're imposed, but often we can be feel a bit frustrated when we're not given notice. Um, we're required to, under the, the Act, to be given plenty of time to so we can prepare and, if, if necessary, get our own legal counsel. I've sort of been frustrated in the past at um, lawyers, both prosecutors and defence lawyers, and like you say, they can support each other in their application, but often it, it seems like there's no pushback from, from, from the judge or magistrate, if an, particularly if an order is an application is frivolous, what, what do you, how do you respond to that? Well, uh, yeah, I think it's a legitimate concern. I, I mean, the notice requirements are mandatory and I would hope they're being complied with. Um, but uh, you couldn't be, I, I wouldn't be 100% confident that they are. Uh, as with most things in the law, um, 
if you don't have someone contending for the opposite proposition, things tend to slide through. But it's extremely difficult in, you know, uh, mm. the ABC, we very rarely contest them because we just don't have the budget to do it. Mm. I've got up on a number of occasions myself and tried to argue them, not terribly successful, I might say, but um, at least tried to sort of talk about the, the kinds of points that we need. But they just seem to come up again and again and again uh, mm. because there's partly that lack of trust. Mm. And I think, I think that's a valid concern. I think that uh, goes back to something we discussed earlier on that we're dealing with you as a mass, recognising that there are still there are some experienced court reporters who do understand subjudice, and people who we regularly see reporting here who don't even know what the word is. And I've sometimes mentioned the word, and you can see this blank expression. And that is part of the problem we're dealing with. We're not just dealing with qualified court reporters. Uh, so that I think that is a that's probably a fair comment that some. Uh, some of them are made simply as a, an abundance of caution to make sure that this trial doesn't go off the rails because some citizen journalist or some um, somebody who's just been sent down by their organisation for the day doesn't inadvertently publish something. I think it's going to be a struggle, a constant struggle. You know, Parliament's trying to help you. They're sort of on your side on this one. <laughs> they keep passing legislation trying to push back against um, suppression making the point you did that um, you shouldn't be making an order when it's covered anyway by the Judicial Proceedings <coughs> Courts Act or some other prohibition. Um, I think we'll never agree, courts and media, because, you know, you need information held back to run your trials yeah. and we're curious and we like getting information out there and, you know, that's always going to clash, isn't it? Yep. Sort of oh, yeah, yeah. There's always going to be tension yeah. and it's always going to be a struggle. Uh, I hope things are getting better. Uh, but I don't know, you tell us, are things getting better or are they staying the same or are they getting worse? What? I think it depends on the issue. I, I think generally, and it depends on the court as well, um, we've had our struggles with other courts, um, but I, I generally find that this court is good to work with in terms of access to transcripts and material. Um, it's Yeah, it's more the frustration on, on I guess, on last-minute suppression order applications and it does feel sometimes that we can be penalised for something that becomes suppressed when in order to prevent a juror going online when a juror doing that is breaching your instructions so in a way it does feel like we're being penalised for something that shouldn't be done so that's a frustration but I think generally it's it's good. You must come across this all the time though suppression order issues yeah, yeah in which way I mean, well, you probably report more cases than anybody else. Yeah. How much of a practical impediment is it, do you think? Like Adam said, it's a huge problem when you're caught out on the spot, when you plan your day around covering a case and all of a sudden, you know, you walk into court, people recognise you and then all of a sudden there's a suppression order application. It happens all the time. Um, the it's best thing in the work. Open Courts Act is... there's media present. The, <laughs> the best thing in the Open Courts Act is the three days notice period mm -hmm. for us because we get that chance to prepare an application. For lawyers, it's a nightmare because they've got to give us three days notice about a case probably that they don't want us to know about. So it's sort of, you know, that doesn't work. But do you think, do people give you the notice by and large? Yeah, or? we do. We, we get lots of notice. there are a lot that have sprung at the last minute. Yeah. Yeah. There are a lot of cases where lawyers will walk into court and say, Your Honour, I'd like a suppression order. And in the meantime, I'd like to give notice now. Can we have an interim order? Mm -hmm. And that's usually granted. Yeah. yeah. The interim stuff's the, oh. the yeah. 
I don't think I've ever come across a case where an interim order hasn't been mm-hmm. granted in that mm-hmm. situation. Well, this is a this is the media and the court's different agendas because to us a day or two is not important. Mm-hmm. To you, a day or two is the difference between a story that's worth reporting and one that's old news. And um, I understand that, but I'm not I want to get on one of my little um, high horses about the timeliness. You know, one thing you often hear in the suppression discussions is it's just like, we're not telling you you can never report it, you just can't report it now. And the timeliness is actually really important in, in the work that we do. F- for accuracy, for starters, because it's fresh, you can actually read your notes that day as opposed to trying to go back afterwards and trying to figure out what that particular squiggle might be. We've got the ability amongst ourselves to be able to sort of say, what was that question? again and, and was it this? So that kind of process is really important. So to say that, it, that it's just a matter of the timing is actually missing a whole important part of um, how the process works for us as journalists. And by the time, if you're sitting in you know, some of these split trials, for example, if you're trying to cover the first defendant and then another defendant, and you know, by the time you get to around to writing anything, half of what you've already written is superfluous, is, is uh, out of date. So I think that, that this idea that the timing isn't important is, is a wrong notion from some um, in, in the legal fraternity and the judiciary. But sometimes it works well, like a lot of big trials, not mentioning any in particular, where you haven't been able to report things and clearly you've worked on massive stories just waiting for the moment when you can press the button and i must say in all of those cases i've had a very strong feeling of well no absolutely no harm done the big story comes out in full detail miles better than you would have done if you've been doing it on the run i would agree with that unless you're Australian media competing with international media. Well, who that's the new component, you know, isn't it? And, but that's a serious point, you know. Mm. Um, that, you know, in certain big cases this year, you know, all the Australian media complied, I think, 100% with orders that were made and, and lots of international media didn't. And, and we're then put at a disadvantage for that, mm. you know. And that's purely commercial. Well, that's going to be... A, a, the future is staring us in the face on that score yeah. because the capacity to control information is becoming more and more difficult it's not we've not got to the point yet where we have to give up that it's become impossible to quarantine juries from information but i think you can probably foresee a day when that will be the case we need to start thinking about how we're going to run trials when it's not possible anymore to quarantine juries from information well we'll have to run the trial accepting that they know Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Nothing, 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 nothing but the truth. This was a special edition of Gertie's Law where four judges of the Supreme Court and four court reporters sat around a table for the very first time. Thanks to everyone involved, Chief Justice Anne Ferguson, Appeal Court Judge Justice Whelan, Principal of the Criminal Division Justice Hollingworth and Principal Judge on the Commercial Court Justice Reardon. And the reporters, Adam Cooper from The Age, Karen Sweeney from AAP, Karen Percy from the ABC and the Herald Sun's Shannon Deary. Gertie's Law is produced by the Supreme Court of Victoria. Thanks again for all your comments and if you can, please leave ratings and reviews. We love hearing what you think and it helps others to find this podcast.